Picture this. You finished your first book and nailed it. The plot, the characters, all the twists and turns. This one's a winner, and all you need is the right cover. If you've got my art skills, this is the part where panic usually sets in. Enter the cover villain, hero to writers everywhere. Founded by noted author Remy Flagg, Cover Villain focuses on composite image covers for science fiction and fantasy writers. Give them the details, and they'll craft a cover using popular trends that everyone will want to see. But wait, you say, I've got ideas of my own. No problem, as Cover Villain loves a good collaboration. As they say, our goal is to put a little villain in every cover we make. Want to know more? Then head to CoverVillain.com and follow them on Facebook and Instagram. Hey everyone, how's it going? And welcome back to Citywide Blackout, your home for music, movies, and more. I'm your host, Max Bowen. For this episode, we are diving back into my favorite world of comics. I'm chatting with Mark Bernardin, who has a lengthy, lengthy resume in the world of television, comics, and journalism. And he's got a brand new graphic novel out, which you can only get on Comixology Originals, called A Door in the Distance. Now, this story has been in the works for years, and we talk a lot about some of the changes it underwent, as well as the hurdles Mark faced when pitching it to publishers. It's inspired by his daughter, who was diagnosed with autism as a toddler. Mark and I also talked about the team he worked with, and let me tell you folks, the art in this comic is amazing. We talk a lot about the creation of this world, and how it even influenced the story. And my next guest, well, I'm going to take a minute and go through his very lengthy resume. He is the co-host of the podcast Fat Men Beyond with the one and only Kevin Smith. He is the award-winning television writer-producer for shows such as Star Trek Picard, Castle Rock, Treadstone, and the upcoming Masters of the Universe, which as an 80s kid I am very, very excited about. He is a comic writer for numerous titles including Genius, The Highwaymen, and Monster Attack Network, best title I've heard in quite a while. And he is a former journalist for the Los Angeles Times, Entertainment Weekly, The Hollywood Reporter, and Playboy. Yes, folks, some people do actually read it for the articles. I am joined by Mark Bernardin. Mark, welcome to the show. I am very excited to be talking to you. Thank you, man. I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to it. All right. Now, of course, we are here to talk about your brand new graphic novel, Adore and the Distance, which you can only get on Comixology Originals. This title, and we'll dive way deep into this, but the overview is that it focuses on a young girl named Adora who finds that she is more or less like next in line to be potentially destroyed by a force known as the Distance. Unfortunately, wherever she lives it will also be on the hit list. So instead, she, like a total badass, basically, decides to go out and go out and face this threat with a small group of people and... The story is phenomenal stuff, Mark. I um, I read the comic. I'll be reading it again. I loved it. Um, oh, thank you. Now, uh, we're, there'll be no spoilers here, folks. You got to go read it. You got to go check it out. <laughs> but I want to ask about the ending. I won't say what happens, yes. but the ending. <laughs> Holy crap! Threw me for a loop. Didn't see it coming. There were no hints given, really, as far as I could tell. But what's been the reaction to just how the story closes out? Um, well, it's, it's funny because uh, along the way, because it's been some 15 years in gestation, this, this story and this book, 
And, you know, it's taken different forms and it's had different shapes over the course of those years. But, you know, that ending was always a part of it, that sort of pulling back the veil to really to reveal exactly what's been going on the whole time. And, you know, there, there were some, you know, editors and publishers who felt it was a little bit too much like, you know, an M. Night Shyamalan ending where it's just suddenly, here's a twist. And, you know, when they're done well, it's a twist that sort of um, makes you reassess the story you just read. You know, it makes you re-examine the tale you've been on. And it offers some new sort of shades and some depth and some perspective to it. But it's done poorly. It's just, oh, so they were just in Philly all along? Well, that's silly. Um, and so part of the, the, the journey for me in the book was figuring out ways to make it so that the ending um, didn't seem like a freight train that just slammed into the side of the reader, that, it, that there were enough kind of breadcrumbs throughout to sort of begin to let you understand that maybe this world isn't everything that it seems to be. And maybe there's something else going on um, you know, behind the, behind the scenes. And so when those two things collided, they made a sort of sense, they harmonized with each other as opposed to just totally, you know, throwing a tuba into a rock band that shouldn't be there. It's like, no, 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 we're just adding another guitar. <laughs> I like that. And I like that metaphor. Very good. Um, <laughs> and I think I'll definitely be looking for the breadcrumbs too, because now that you said that, I'm thinking, hmm, was this thing a breadcrumb? Was that a breadcrumb? It kind of makes you see the whole story differently. It surprises me when I when I heard that you had a hard time pitching this. The folks were a little not too receptive to this. I'm curious, did they ever give you suggestions like, oh, change this, do this differently, change the ending? Um, yeah, you know, there were there were some concerns that that yes, the ending um felt like it came out of nowhere to some people. Um, to others, they wanted the information that you get at the ending to be running throughout the book. You know, they wanted, you know, just like, let's cut away and see what's happening in this story. And so that you were, it, it was never a surprise, but it was always part of the fabric and the drama itself, you know, and, and over time, like there are parts of those I would kind of internalize a bit and think about and debate internally and, and see that there was some wisdom in giving the audience a few clues that it didn't seem so much like a tube and a rock band. But I did, you know, push pretty hard against making that the story because that did fight, you know, the, the, the thing that made me want to tell it this way was that I, you know, in doing a story about the subject matter, which, you know, not to give too much away, but it's, you know, a lot of it is about raising um, a, a child who's on the spectrum. I, I did not want the story to be about the people raising the child. I wanted it to be about the child. And so the more that, you know, the more that the real world made itself clear, the less interested I was. <laughs> I get that. I get that. When it comes to taking feedback or taking su uh, suggestions, um, how are you at that? You know, I think that my, you know, I, I spent a long time as a journalist. Um, and journalism is not a place for auteurs to live because, you know, you've got to, like, hey, we've got this magazine comes out weekly. We've got this newspaper comes out daily. You know, we have this internet, which comes out instantaneously. Um, the story's got to be the best version of itself. And it's got to be the thing that, that, that adheres to the standards and practices of the, of, the, of the place you're publishing. And so you can't be precious about things, um, but you have to know what part of the story is important, you know, and, you, and that's the thing that you, you, you stick to. That's the thing that you, you, know, you will fight to the death to preserve is here's what it's about. 
here's the perspective of it. Here's what it's trying to say. And if we can make it say that better and clearer and stronger, then I'm all for it. But if it starts to, if you get the mission creep of like, well, but we didn't think this was what it was and it's turning into something I don't recognize nor do I agree with, and that's when you got to pump the brakes. So I'm, I'm a collaborative person by nature. I mean, publishing and television is very much about collaborative mediums. And so if a great idea comes along, I'm happy to take it. But if it, if it changes the nature of the thing, then, then I will push back against it. As a fellow journalist, I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure you and I could probably share quite a, quite a few stories about numerous times when we more or less had totally. to pump those brakes. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a machine. And, you know, journalism is absolutely a process. But so much of it is, how do we keep saying the thing we want to say while respecting the process? And like, okay, there's fact checking and there's copy editing and there's editorial, you know, demands and there's publishing concerns, but I want to write this story and here's why. And if it's no longer that story, then maybe we do another story. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Now, as you mentioned earlier, this story was inspired in part uh, because your daughter who is mm -hmm. on the spectrum, mm -hmm. but how did it go from how the story came to be basically? Um, I mean, some of it came to be because, you know, when, when I, you know, when my daughter was diagnosed and, you know, I'm a journalist and I'm a storyteller and people are like, Hey, so, you know, you should write about this. And because I'm a journalist, you know, I think the expectations was, well, you should just write that sort of first person, you know, so, you know pseudo memoir about, you know, what it's like to, to be a dad who's raising a kid on the spectrum. And I was like, well, I could, but a, that already exists, and B, I'm not interested in myself. Like, I don't love myself nearly enough to write about me to that length. Um, but the thing that I was most interested in was the thing that I didn't know. Like, what's the question? And the question is, what goes on inside the head of a kid who can't tell you? You know, what's, what story is she telling herself that she can't reveal to you? Um, what emotional journey is she on that she can't share with you? And so coming up with the answers to those questions which were purely speculative because I don't have access, um, you know, it began to take this, this kind of fantastical shape. And because I'm a nerd, you know, it began to feel like, you know, a bit Tolkien, a bit, you know, Alexandre Dumas, a little bit um, Robert E. Howard, you know, these sort of grand quest tales that had supernatural elements and magic and, and you know, songs and tales of, of revelry and, and, and sorcery and, and like a good time. I wanted it to feel like an adventure. I wanted it to feel like a romp. Um, I wanted it to feel like a story you could read a kid of, you know, seven, eight or nine without, you know, there being some, some like, oh no, people are going to die. It's not, you know, it's not a fairy tale that way, but it's an adventure. And so, so because I am the guy that I am and because this was the story that appeared to me, it's like, well, then let's, let's ride this out. Let's see what it feels like. Mm-hmm. Now, you mentioned how you weren't really interested in telling your story about being the father of a child on the spectrum. Mm -hmm. um, I do want to ask, though, about avoiding any of the tropes or the common things that we see with people who are autistic in the media, whether it's in TV shows, movies, or books. Well, yeah, I mean, I didn't want it, you know, it, the story is taking place from her perspective, you know, and so what is her vision of her own life? What is her you know, how, how, do, how do the contours of that world make sense for her while she's in it? And, you know, just as it's impossible for anyone to know exactly what they sound like, 
You know, like the me that I hear in my head is not the you that you hear out in the world. And because it's subjective. And so I wanted her subjective story to be one that did not come with the trappings that an outside world would add to it. You know, and, and the things that she's enduring and going through are hers and hers alone. And in that world, um, you know, she, she will still have her issues, but they won't feel as in stark relief to the outside world because it's all fantasy, it's all a construct. Spoiler, it's all a fantasy and it's all a construct. Um, so I think that that let me sidestep some of the, the standard tropes. And I've worked on TV shows that have had autistic characters and, and all too often autism is either presented as a superpower or a crutch, you know, or some kind of, you know, severe handicap. And because I was going from the inside out, um, none of those things really made sense. I get you. I get you. Um, I, I guess I'm a little curious as to what it is like being the parent of a child on the spectrum. Um, well, I think that, that just as no two kids are the same, you know, no two kids on the spectrum are the same. Um, I will say that the, the experience is one of, um, you know, if you have a kid, the, the analogy I like to use is when you have a kid, typical or not, um, the world exists for them from birth, like a giant Vegas buffet. Right, like anything you could possibly imagine under the world is in that buffet. And as your kid gets older, they will begin to like, well, you know what, I don't like fish, so this part of the buffet is not for me. And I don't like, you know, mushrooms, so I'm not gonna go over there. And they begin to, by sort of natural progression, begin to, to winnow the options on the buffet. For me, being the parent of an autistic kid is, a lot of those options to get winnowed are giant. You know, it's not so much like, my kid doesn't like soccer too much. My kid really likes saxophone. It's my kid is never going to go to college or my kid is never going to get married, you know? And so those, those giant signposts that you, as a typical person in a typical world, have already pre, you know, established. And like, all right, well, they start a college fund. We're going to do these things. No longer become operative. And so it's just pulling different things off of that table, off of that buffet. But it's still filled with glorious and wondrous foods. Um, they're just different than some of the other foods and they're less of them. And they only want to eat five of them over and over and over again. Um, but so it's, it's a matter of, of realigning your expectations um, while still finding the joy in the small moment. Was that hard to do, to realign your expectations? Um, it's incredibly hard to do. Um, but the upside is you don't have a choice. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it, it is not a matter of um, doing it or not doing it. It's happening anyway. So it's a matter of how quickly you can embrace it and then begin to plan for the next thing. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a game of tennis and you're playing against somebody who's a little bit better than you. And so all you can hope to do is return the ball. Um, and so I feel like that's, that is a lot of parent parenting in general. It's just, I got to return this ball. Um, issue is that the top spin on this one is really, really wicked. <laughs> I get you. I get you. I, I actually have a friend um, who, and she's been very public about this, so I'm not, I'm not, I'm not really revealing anything secret, but um, one of her kids has a Down syndrome. And I think, mm -hmm. like you, she had to adjust to the reality that, okay, X, X, X are never going to happen. Like, I, I, I similarly have a friend who found out when uh, her child was in utero that he would only be born with one arm. And it's like, 
okay, here's a thing we didn't think we would have to deal with, but now we do, you know? And the thing of it is, is that that child isn't going to believe it's any different until you tell him he is, you know, until the world treats him that way. And so the thing that you have to do as a parent is make sure that that doesn't come from you, mm-hmm. you know, that that becomes like, you have to be the support system that exists and you have to be the one who always treats him as if he's as good, if not better than everybody else, you know? And so it's, it's, it's just, it's that recalibration that once you do as a parent, you're like, okay, this is the world. I get it. Fine. Pushing forward, making it the best world we can for this next generation. Now, I don't have kids, so I know nothing about parenting. I'm probably the last person <laughs> who should actually be responsible for a life form. Um, so I cannot begin to imagine what it is like to have a child who is, who is on the spectrum. How do you avoid saying, oh, why me? I mean, the, the, the hope is that you don't actually avoid them. You know, the hope is that as with any other trauma you're going to experience in your life is to feel it and absorb it and process it and push to the other side of it. Um, you know, I, I'd have to imagine it's like, you know, discovering that, you know, or getting hit by a car or having like, I don't have the use of this part of my body. This sucks. It's awful. I'm going to mourn it. And then I'm going to absorb it and process it and then come out the other side as something else, you know, not better or worse, but something else, you know? So I think that, that so much of this is, you know, sure. I, you know, you can rage against the skies all you want. It's not going to change the fact that this is the way it is. Um, And, you know, being a parent is always about like, oh, this is changing the fabric of my world. And I have to embrace that fact that it's going to change and take it for all that it is. And then, and then just make your way out the other side. Do you see a message or a takeaway for people when it comes to dealing with those who are on the spectrum? I mean, I think that, or what I hope that this book will give people who read it and have no experience with people with, with, you know, on the autism spectrum is that they are as valid and valued as anybody else's, you know, and that their stories are, have as much value as anybody else does. And that even though from whatever perspective you come to that community with, um, what you're seeing on the outside does not necessarily reflect what's on the inside and how, you know, we as, you know, humans, we, we, we're, we're tribal people, you know, we're, we're, we, we like to build things and classify things and put them in boxes that make sense to us. And, and when you're seeing a person who's, you know, deeply autistic in an airport or a restaurant or a movie theater or whatever, and they're acting out, which is not what's happening. They're just being who they are. And how that is, it doesn't conform to the way that, that typical society functions, but to have a little bit of sympathy, you know, and some empathy. And like, I don't know what's happening there, but I know nobody wants that to be happening there, you know, and I know that, that it's, it's, it's who that person is. And they're not, they're not doing it. It has nothing to do with me. So why am I, inter, why am I interceding in a, in a situation that has nothing to do with me? Like, you know, nod your head, go with God, move along. <laughs> Everybody wins. Exactly, exactly. I believe you said earlier that part of the story was about sharing the world of a person who is on the spectrum because they can't communicate necessarily those stories to to other people. So in the case of your daughter, has she been able to share some of her stories with you? 
Um, no, I mean, the, the, the weird wrinkle of autism is that if you meet one kid on the spectrum, you've only met one kid on the spectrum. And, and it is, you know, I think Star Trek, it's infinite diversity and infinite combinations and the same thing with kids on the spectrum. And so the way it manifests in my daughter is that she doesn't have ready access to her emotional state. Um, you know, she can tell me what she wants, she can tell me what she needs, but she'll never tell me how she feels. And so story, so much of story is about emotional content. And so she has no way to relate that to me. So everything that I imagine is just that. It's my imagination, it's my internal fiction trying to build a story that may or may not be true. Um, you know, sometimes that story comforts me, sometimes it doesn't, but you know, I, I, I would like to hope that should she ever find the capacity to tell me what that story is, it is completely different than what I've imagined, but, but, uh, but still surprising and wonderful. Excellent. Excellent. I, I imagine that I failed, <laughs> but that's just my, that's my standard default is, oh, you failed at this. <laughs> nice try, champ. Oh, jeez. <laughs> that doesn't seem healthy, but okay. That's the imposter syndrome kicking in. Ah, I get you. I get you. <laughs> All right, let's dive into the world of Adora and the Distance. I said we do it. We're doing it now. The story has been in the works for about 15 years. Did it undergo a lot of changes between what you had originally and what is published? Um, not too many. You know, I think that that it, it, well, the title changed. It, it, it originally was Adora and the Big Nothing. Um, and it, the Big Nothing then changed to the Distance. Um, you know, there was always a desire to see things that I had never seen before, which is like, I want underwater, underground rivers and pirates, and I want lava monsters that are really sweet, and I want blades of grass that'll slice you to pieces, as this sort of like, if this is going to be your quest, the quest needs cool stuff to quest through. And so trying to imagine versions of those that I'd not seen, you know, colored a bit by, again, Tolkien, and informed a bit by playing D&D as a kid. Um, you know, but, but the structure was always there. The structure of, you know, we meet her in what seems to be a warm and nurturing environment. She is, she is called to go on an adventure the, 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 and she answers the call um, and she loses things along the way. She gains things along the way until she finally has to confront the thing that she had been um, trying to avoid. Um, while also knowing full well there was never a way to avoid it. Mm. And so that part, those things were always there. You know, every now and again, like, you know, a little character tweak here, a little supporting character there, a little revelation here and there, um, all kind of fell into place. But it was always that. It was always that, that feel, that thrust of that story um, from very early on. Okay, okay. Now... I know that for a story like this, world building must have taken a long time, but this is also familiar territory for you. You've worked on a number of titles that required just that. That being said, does, does world building get easier the more often you do it? You know, I, I, I always liken my, my answer to something like this, to something Harrison Ford always used to say, was that like, I'm not, I'm not an artist, I'm a craftsman. It's like, for me, acting is like building a chair. I know how to build you a chair. I have a little support your weight. Um, it might not be overly fancy, but it'll be functional. You know, I think over time, the exercise of building a world, um, while never as sort of rudimentary as just building a chair, 
but you start to feel innately the things that that world is going to need to feel like it's a real place. You know, you know it's going to need some semblance of politics. You know it's going to need some semblance of culture. You know it's going to need some kind of shape that that approximates a place people have seen and or felt before. Um, you just start to to it becomes not quite instinct, but you know you 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 sense the things that, that world needs. But every world you build is different, and part of the joy of comics, as it is in television, is is that you're not building it alone. And every new collaborator will bring some different element to the world that you might not have. You know, like I, I, I think the script called for the place that Adora, you know, lives, our, our beginning of the story was just like a port city that feels like Spain in like the 17th or 18th centuries. And, and Ariella Cristantina, who, who's the pencil and inker, the artist, came aboard and then like went bananas. Like she starts like culling together this research and she's like Moroccan stuff. and. Muslims and and you know here's temples and mosques and I want arcs and I want this and and she began building this fabric of a world that that felt like it was very much influenced by history and by reality but pushing elements together that might not have ordinarily gone together you know and so that that like deep visual design work that she did took the four sentences that I put on the page about what this place feels like and made it something else entirely like she's doing research into like ships riggings and masts from like tall ships from the from the you know the, the the armada of the spanish fleet and i'm like that's amazing more than i did <laughs> you know oh, like if it's a, if it's a novel all of that work is mine to do but you know and the the best that i can do is help my collaborators kind of see what i see in my head you know, like, I feel like it's this. I feel like you can smell the salt in the air. I feel like there are, you know, seagulls in the, in the skies. And I feel like it's, you know, the, the, there's, there's fish markets on the docks. Like, I feel like these things are there. And then they can take that sort of impetus and then do their magic to it and make it feel real and build it all out. And I'm, I'm always grateful to collaborators who can carry the ball, but then bring their own spin to it. They did such an amazing job. I mean, like when I looked on the first page, I thought, holy crap, this is amazing. The detail, the colors, the variety. Um, did you find you had to give any kind of guidance beyond, like you said, uh, the four sentence uh, descriptions? Like, um, I mean, there's always a little bit of push and pull. And, and the, the wonder of comics is that you're seeing it in so many different stages. You know, you're seeing the, the very rudimentary thumbnail phase just to see, does this flow? Does it work? Is the, is the eye tracking along the page the right way? Do we have the rudimentary information that we know we're gonna need? And then you get pencils and then it's all right, well, that face is a little off and that thing is a little off. And is there a different angle we can get there that will reveal this stuff? And then when you get to colors, it's, you know, are we, you know, do the color values work? Are we, are we telling the time of day the right way? Are we, are we conveying the passage of time? Are we doing all that stuff? There's always, you know, little adjustments and tweaks to be made. But, you know, if you pick the right team, um, those, those changes, especially towards the tail end of the process, when you know each other and you're working and everything is firing in those cylinders, then it becomes like, wow, that's awesome. I got nothing to add to this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull some words out because that's, that's always the experience is I end up cutting back on the dialogue and the, and the prose because you're doing all the work. Like, I don't need to have more words here. You're selling it with these pictures. I don't. I don't need to be present all the time if you guys are doing the job that that I that I hoped you would. 
Yeah, I think I see what you mean. So, so like you didn't have to do any descriptions because you can just see everything. You don't. There's yeah. no like. There's no like a a scene setting basically. Not so much. Even sometimes, you know, Ariella would find a way to convey um, emotion and sometimes even plot in just a look, just the, the the visage on somebody's face. Like I don't need that line anymore. I completely know what's happening on that person's face and in that person's mind. So yeah, no, pull that out, cut this, strike that. <laughs> Had you ever worked with this team before? I never have. Um, the uh, I had wanted to work with Ariella for a long time, um, but our schedules had never meshed together. You know, Will Dennis, who is the editor, you know, is a legendary figure in comics. Like he's the dude who was the first editor on Preacher, you know, and Why the Last Man, and like, and he's he's been he was like one of Vertigo's foundational guys. And so, and I see, though he's got deep, deep history in, in A, comics and story and world building and all that stuff, but also just the mechanics of how one makes a comic and how one traffics a comic. And, uh, and so this team together um, was extraordinary, you know, from, from the arts to the colors, to the inks, to the letters, to, to Will Dennis just making it all go. Um, yeah, I could not have been in better hands, which is, is precisely the place you want to be as a, as a dude who's, you know, launching the work of his life into the world. Like I, I, I just, I want to feel like I'm not alone out here. <laughs> Speaking of that, do you feel like this work stands apart from stuff you've done in the past? You know, I think it's more emotional than most of the, the comics work that I've done before. Um, I think the audience is broader than a lot of the work that I've done before. Um, you know, there's there's other stuff that I love dearly and deeply. Um, you know, Monster Attack Network will always hold a special place in my heart because it was the first one. You know, and there, and there's bits of that book that I that I still you know I chuckle at when I read. Um, but yeah, this this was the one. You know, this feels like the first album. You know what I mean? When it's like you know you're a garage band, and you've been spending you know this is the album that took you 20 years to write. And then your sophomore album is the one you wrote when you were on tour. <laughs> so the first one is like, here's everything we ever wanted to say about anything. And then the second one is, here's some stuff we learned last week in Prague. <laughs> so we put it on the record. This is cool, right? Um, so this feels very much like that first album of the, it's taken the longest. Um, it came to me the earliest. Um, it's been worked as, as much as anything can be worked and rewritten and honed and polished to within an inch of its life. Um, so yeah, this this will always be the the special one. Was it tough to walk away and say, "Okay, we're done. No more tweaks. Get it out there." Um, it was it was hard to a point because you know journalism will teach you that no matter how much you love that story, it has to go to the printer now. And so, hands off, everybody. You got to ship this at two o'clock in the morning on a Tuesday. Um, so the 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 I don't have separation anxiety anymore about stuff it's like you make it as good as you can while you can and then you send it along the, the the pipeline and then you give one last look and then you know off it goes um all of that said i will not admit that there weren't typos that i found like when the book is in the comicsology <laughs> like store but uh the upshot is it's digital and so we can go back in and fix it like if it was if this was the hardcover which is you know coming next year from dark horse like if it was in print and it where I, I found a typo i would you know bang my head against a wall but this way it's like hey guys i misspelled that thing 
Metabus got it. That's cool, <laughs> right? <laughs> guys, guys, real quick, real quick. Page 42, panel four. <laughs> fix that shit. Yeah, seriously. And they they did. Like the minute I was like, guys, we have a typo. Like, what tell us where it is. We can go in, we can upload a different version. We're all good. Um, but yeah, it's it's hard to let go, but that's the that's the gig. I hear what you're saying about getting uh, getting things printed out and, and feeling that kind of anxiety because that's me. Deadline day when the paper is shipped out, there's a part of me that's like, you know, I feel confident, I can do this, everything looks good. Another part of me is like, I am awful at everything I do. What the hell am I even <laughs> doing? Why am I still employed in this industry? Yeah, I, I remember I was I was turning in an episode of TV to my showrunner. Uh, I think it was on Carnival Row, and uh, and he uh, like he called me and said, "Yeah, hey, man, I got some notes for you." But first, like this is really good. Like, not that that's a surprise to you. You're an old hand at this. I was like, "No, man, I need to know every time that this was halfway decent because I always think that every time I will have forgotten how all of this works." <laughs> <laughs> and I will have screwed this up royally. Um, so yeah, it, it never really goes away. Yeah, yeah, you're 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 just like always worried that what you're turning in is just going to be a piece of shit, and no one's going to say anything until it's out there, and you realize now everyone knows. Fantastic. Yeah. It's like, why didn't anybody tell me earlier? <laughs> exactly. I thought you liked me. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's a problem. They like you too much to criticize you. I know. Well, that does not seem to be a problem. <laughs> <laughs> that's good actually that's also the internet is very good about delivering criticisms oh yes it is speaking <laughs> of which um i imagine this is very like old hat to you though how are you on on like release day when the reviews come in and people are like giving their comments um, I've, I've gotten a little bit more sane about it i think for the early stuff or like because there was um monster attack network and the highwaymen both came out within a bunch a month of each other so it was like for for a solid six weeks, it was just nothing but like watching the internet and reading reviews and liking some of them and hating other ones and and living and dying with each you know number of stars we would see at the bottom of the review. Um, I've gotten a little bit chiller about it uh, over time, you know, especially you know being a person who talks about things on the internet um, will teach you to a never read the comments. Um, that way lies madness but also to, to realize that, yeah, you know, it's not the end of the world. Like, I think it's pretty good. If somebody else doesn't like it, that's cool. I have also not liked things that other people love. Um, and so it does not, it doesn't alter the very nature of the thing, especially in my own eyes. So, and luckily nobody's come out and said, oh, this stinks to high heaven. Well done, everybody involved in this piece of crap. I haven't gotten that review yet. Um, and I hope you I never do. I know, but it's, there's there's always there's always that person. Yeah. I'm sure if I if I grind down deep enough in the Amazon reviews, I'll find the guys like, "What is this? It's a garbage." There's always there's always that one person out there who just gives a bad review to be the bad review. Yes, every single yeah. time. Um, the dissenter. Yeah, we talked earlier about publishers, and I'm curious how you came to the attention of Comicsology and what their reaction was when you made your pitch. Well, I, the, the, the benefit of having, of A, being an old ass man who's been around for a long time and one who's had two or three different careers is that I had met the, the sort of the guy heading up the Comixology Originals uh, label when we were both doing different things. You know, he was, he was in PR for, I want to say it was Boom Comics and I was in Entertainment Weekly and still writing comics. 
And so we knew each other. Um, and then, uh, you know, we bang into each other every Comic-Con. And then, you know, two, two and a half years ago, is like, yeah, I'm doing Comic Selling, Comic Selling Originals and just figured out, I'm asking, like, do you have anything in the bar? Like, do you have any, any story that you've always wanted to tell? Do you have the passion project? Do you have, you know, the, your, your great American graphic novel? Um, and if you do, you know, would, what, what do you think about bringing it to Comicsology? And then I told him about Adora and then I sent him, you know, a two or three page pitch. And he's like, let's do this. I was like, yeah. He's like, yeah, I want to do this. Okay, cool. It's like, what does that mean? So we're making a book. Like, oh, okay, great. <laughs> I like this process. <laughs> <laughs> For reals? Like, we're really doing this? Are you sure about it? Awesome? Cool. Yeah. It's like, you have any thoughts? Yeah, go make the book. Oh, even better. <laughs> <laughs> Easy. I, I like this. Straightforward. Yeah. So, yeah, Chip Chip Mosier over at Conversology. Um, you know, and, and again, comics is the smallest loveliest weirdest community um but breaking into comics is like breaking out of prison in that no two people do it the same way and they always seal up the hole after you're through and so you know the way i broke into comics is not applicable to most people i was a journalist for 20 years you know and and i then was able to parlay that into writing comics there are not a ton of other journalists who could pull that off there are not a lot of other people who could pull that off but Mark Wade broke in a completely different way, and Matt Fraction broke in a completely different way. It's all, it's all uh, a bit of a crapshoot. That just worked out for me. <laughs> I think journalism is kind of the same way too, because I've known folks who went the traditional route. You know, like they they went out to J school, maybe got their masters, and then got into the field. You know, they worked for like a daily or a weekly. They made them wrong to work for like you know CNN, NBC, Fox, what have you. Mm-hmm. And other folks who were history majors. And still been the journalism, and they're still in it today. So yeah, there's yeah. really is like I, no two ways. I did not go to J school either. I was not a history major. I was a I was a an aspiring filmmaker who ended up at a tiny magazine called Starlog because I was also a nerd. And then I was at Starlog for three years, and a friend of mine was at EW who said, "Hey, they're looking for smart people. You want to put your resume in?" And I did, and they hired me. <laughs> and then that sort of kicked off a pretty decent career. And again. I could not tell anybody else that that's a path they could follow, <laughs> nor should they. <laughs> I was an English major, which I'm pretty sure is actually Russian for wants to write, but has absolutely no bloody clue how they're going to go about doing it. <laughs> I took two classes, no internships. So when, I, so, when I, so when I got out of school, I had barely any experience <laughs> and more or less had to pester the, uh, uh, the editor-in-chief to the point where I think he hired me just to shut me the hell up. And 20 years later, I'm still doing it. That is also a fair way to go. Yeah. That is also a fair way to go. Be the gadfly pest that, that, uh, that like, listen, can what, what will it take? (laughs) What will it take to shut you up? (laughs) (laughs) Let's do that then. Exactly. Exactly. Um, having worked in all the different fields in journalism, TV, and comics, what do you make a truly compelling story? Um, I mean, I think that, that at the end of the day, it all comes down to, to having characters that people not like. Likeability is not necessary, but, but the ability to understand who these characters are, what their obstacles are, how you can find your version of yourself in that character, their obstacles, and then give them a story that, uh, that either allows them to triumph or fail in ways that you can respond to. Um, you know, and I and I think that like one of my favorite movies of all time, and maybe the best movie ever made, 
um, is aliens to me. Now, I do not, you know, happen to be a, a long haul space trucker, um, nor am I a colonial Marine, nor have ever gone up against a xenomorph in cramped quarters, um, you know, nor am I a woman of a certain age who lost a child. Um, but I understand it. You know, I understand Ripley's journey. I understand her struggles. I understand what she's trying to achieve and the obstacles that are in front of her. And I think if you can, if you can do that, you know, if you can figure out that sort of matrix of story, then I think you have a pretty decent chance of making something that other people will enjoy too. You know, um, it's, it is not rocket surgery, but it is still, there's, you know, I'm building chairs. <laughs> I understand how chairs work. Um, but, you know, there, there's a craft to it and there's a skill to it. Um, and then there's, you know, the, the unknowable, weird randomness of, I found a way to make this thing special, you know, and I found a way to make it different. And that way always, to me, comes from within. Like, what's the story that I can tell that nobody else can tell, mm. you know? And I think that if you can figure that out about yourself, you've got a pretty decent shot. Um, so many people are trying to tell stories that other people can tell or have told. You know, nobody, nobody technically needs another Game of Thrones except maybe George R. R. Mark, um, who's still got one more left to write. Um, the, the world desperately needs the thing that nobody else has read yet. And so figure out what that is and how you can do that. And I imagine that's kind of hard these days because as the old saying goes, there are no more new stories. Everything's been told. You could look at, I think, at most stories and say, oh, yeah, this, you know, X is similar to Y, A is similar to B. So when you were writing Adora, did you worry a lot about being 100% unique? Um, no, because you're, you're, you're exactly right in that, you know, there are no new stories under the sun. Um, there's, there's a book. That I, that I bought and read and you know it's it's less useful than one might think but it was called the 36 dramatic situations um, which ultimately breaks it down to yeah no there's only 36 variations of story you know even beyond the three man versus man man versus nature man versus self you know like there's and the I'm coming home or I'm going out <laughs> you know it's, it's the journey and the return um, but so Adora was always going to feel and always going to share similarities with other stories. Um, but the hope is that, you know, my version of a quest narrative um, with a cast of interesting characters would be different from The Princess Bride, which would be different from Tolkien, which would be different from Krull, which would be different from Flash Gordon, you know, all of which are kind of similar and share a lot of the same DNA but none of them could be the one that I wrote because I wrote it about something that was true to me. And I think that if you can figure out the thing that's true to you and find the right story vessel for it, then, uh, then you've got a shot. Mm -hmm. Well, speaking of, of uh, characters, I love the character of Adora. She's nine years old, but she's so capable as a person, you know, like she goes going like a toe to toe with politicians and just totally putting them in their place. She's very much on top of uh, what goes on in the kingdom. And when she learns the distance is coming, it's, co it's coming for you. She's like, okay, well, I'm going to go meet it. And she even tells her, uh, ado her adopted uncle, don't cry. Mm -hmm. I got this. That to me was like, wow, this is, this is a very, very mature child here. Yeah. You know, some of that comes from, you know, my, my desire to treat children 
not as adults, you know, especially in story, but you know, to to treat them as as characters who also have their wants and needs and their skills without some of the the weird burdens that we as adults place on them. Which is Adora knows what she doesn't know. You know, she knows the things that she can't handle, um, and she knows that there are people who have lots of things to teach her. But she also knows what she does know. Um, you know, and and she can look at things with a perspective that other people can't. Um, and and I have always been deeply uh, influenced by Neil Gaiman's work. Um, you know, and there's 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 no there's no short amount of Coraline in Adora. I think you know specifically the you know it, it, bravery is not um, the absence of fear; it's action in the face of fear. You know, and Adora is afraid. She's afraid from the very beginning, but she still does what she has to do. Um, and she's not trying to hide that fear. She's just trying to, to push forward. And I, and I thought that that was in the same way that Coraline is a, is a very important story to tell um, young people. I was hoping to channel a little bit of that juice, to siphon a little bit of that, uh, that mojo off of that and stick it into Adora. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I liked is that when she approached a challenging situation, she was very good at like logicking her way out of it. Like there's one scene, I won't spoil it guys. You got to read it, check it yourself. But she just basically takes it apart piece by piece and totally flips the script. It's like, now she's in control. Did Adora's character undergo a lot of revision as you were kind of building the world? Um, not too much. You know, like I, I think if there was any kind of modulation in her, it was how much she admitted to being, you know, afraid or uh, doubting herself or, you know, or, or any sort of, you know, she, I didn't want her to feel like a quote unquote Mary Sue, um, even though technically she's nine and her name might as well be Mary Sue um, or could be. But, you know, the idea that she knew herself well enough to know what she was good at and then what she was. Um, there was that. You know, there's an old joke or story or whatever it is, parable about um, this fire truck that gets stuck in a tunnel because it's too high for the tunnel. And so, you know, all of the police and the construction guys, the EMTs and everybody showing up trying to figure out ways to like break the, the bridge to let the truck out, to, you know, grease the roof of it to let it out. And then some little kid goes over and says, let the air out of the tires, you know, and then that's the way you do it. Like just looking at a thing, at a problem in a way that nobody else is. And I was trying to create a character who could have that capacity of just looking at a situation and saying, but what if it's this? What if we try this? Because she doesn't know well enough not to indulge that. You know, the, the innocence of children can, can often ask the questions that nobody else will ask. Oh, yeah, yeah. Kids, I find, are wonderful because they have none of the baggage that we get mm-hmm. as teens and adults. They just say what's on their minds. They speak plainly, and you know they're always speaking honestly because they don't know any other way to talk. Yeah, you know, and so when Adora's sitting down with politicians or, or, or inmates or whatever it is, nothing she says comes from a place of malice. You know, she's not, she's not wielding her words to do any damage, um, but she's also not protecting anybody with them either. So I think it, what, what might sound like impudence or insolence is just honestly, you know, I had this thought. It occurred to me. I said it. <laughs> Can't be mad at me. But it was true. <laughs> Did you find you were channeling any of your own daughter into Adora? 
you know, some of the, the, the trappings of the world are very much inspired by her. Um, you know, all of the knights are ultimately named after characters from the Wiggles. Um, Adora itself is a, is a play on Dora from Dora the Explorer. Um, you know, all of these things that, that my daughter loved as a, as a little girl and then never let go of as she got older. And so like these, these things are always swirling in her mind. And so what, what I imagined the interior you know, narrative to be was always going to include characters like that. So yeah, it's never, it's never too far from the mark, I think. Now the distance, um, I love this concept for like the villain of the story and that the, and that the distance doesn't really have a, a definition. We just know that it is a city ending threat. Was there a, I guess, like a meaning or by creating such like a nebulous antagonist? Yeah, I mean, I, I wanted it to not have intent. You know, like I wanted it to feel less like, you know, a bad guy to be punched, but more like a, a force of nature, like a hurricane. You know, like you can't impart, um, you know, motives to a snowstorm or to a blizzard. You know, you can't, you know, for as much damage as a tornado will do, it's not technically the tornado's fault. You know, the tornado didn't decide to hit this house and spare that house. It just, it does what it does. You know, so to come up with, with a representation of a, an antagonist, for lack of a better word, that did not imply malice was kind of important because I didn't want this to be a good versus evil story. You know, because ultimately what the distance is, not to spoil anything, is neither good nor evil. Um, it, is, it is just evolution. It is just a change in the state of, of this story. And so, so yeah, like coming up with something a little bit nebulous, but a little bit frightening in the way that the unknown can be frightening without it being aggressively bad, um, I think was, was the key to figuring out how to characterize it and how to, and how to let those characterizations live in the characters more than it did in the things we saw on the page. Like, cause you don't see the distance, spoiler, until the very last pages, but it exists for real in the story because people all have an opinion about it. Mm -hmm. I like seeing some of the effects of it, not necessarily on the landscape, but on the people, because like you have people mm -hmm. who, whose minds are shattered by it, who are just lost because they've lost their home. Did this concept come from like um, a myth or a legend? Um, you know, one of, as much as many of my early influences are like comics and movies and stuff, but I loved as a kid, like Greek mythology. You know, I loved those stories. And I think um, I may butcher the name or not. Orpheus and Eurydice, I think, is this myth about Orpheus, who was, you know, a young man who fell in love with this woman named Eurydice, and she dies. And he tries to go to hell or to Hades to bring her back. And I think the deal of it is, is that he needs to lead her back to the surface. But if he looks back to see if she's following him, he'll lose her forever. And so that feeling of somebody walking ghostly through an, an underworldly place, that feeling of somebody, you know, existing between the light and the dark who might've lost a bit of themselves um, probably comes from some of those stories about, you know, Greek heroes going into the underworld to rescue ones that they love. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I like that. Um, how did it feel to have this thing published after all the years and the work spent on it to have it say, okay, 
it's out there. The the journey for you is completed. You know, it feels it, it feels good. It feels like a completion. You know, there's there's not a ton of things that one gets to do as either a journalist or a TV writer or even a comic book writer that ever feel complete. You know, like there's always another issue of the paper or the magazine. There's always another episode of TV. Um, you know, rarely does anybody get to work on a show that ends of its own accord. It's always canceled out from under you. There's never like, rarely is there a last episode of a podcast. You're just going to keep on doing podcasts until you decide to stop. Um, so there was a, an odd sense of completion that I don't often encounter. But I think the real kind of emotional um, punch in the gut happened when I first was able to print out all of it, you know, all of the colors, all of the letters, every page, you know, and read it in one big chunk, like in, in front of me. I think that was the moment where it was real in ways that had always just been theoretical, you know, like here it is, it's on my table. And that's, that's when, you know, it all kind of lands on you relatively hard of like, oh, oh, it's done now. Okay. You know, I'm like, yeah, well, We'll, you know, dot some I's and cross some T's and we'll, you know, put a nice bow on it. But the work is now done. And that's 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 when it really felt good. Did you find yourself kind of like missing the journey, though, when it, uh, once it was done? Um, you know, a little bit, but, you know, not terribly. You know, it was we have gone together, Adora and I, for a long time. And, you know, the, the, the road was long, but... Ultimately, I think we got to a place where we we're both happy with <laughs> with how it ended, and I I I don't necessarily miss it. You know, Chip and the Comicsology team said, "Well, there, you know, there are more stories to tell, right?" I'm like, "I don't know, maybe, but if there are, I'm not like desperate to tell them right now. I, I, I would never I would never close the door on it. But at the same token, it's like this this is the story that it was supposed to be. Um, no longer, no shorter. Um, you know." There, but there are other worlds than this, I think is a, is a line from the book. And so, yeah, there, there are other stories to tell in this world, but you know, maybe I'll get there, maybe I won't. But yeah, now this, this, it was a good road, but every road needs to end. All right. Well, Mark, this was a lot of fun. I was really happy to dive into the world. And folks, if you haven't checked it out, go do so now. A Door in the Distance, Comixology Originals, six bucks a month. You get plenty for your money, so yes. go read it right now. Go right now. Yeah. And if you have Amazon Prime in any fashion, you get it for free. Even better. Even better. Even better. <laughs> <laughs> Mark, um, uh, where do folks go if they want to learn more about you and check out your work? Um, I'm relatively easy to find on the internet. Um, I am at Mark Bernardin, that's Mark with a C, on both Instagram and Twitter. And I, I, I'm guessing that you can see uh, on either of those channels, the, the things that I'm up to at any given time. And I guess the next thing other than a door that you can see my name on is Master of the Universe Revelation, which drops on the 23rd of July, which is yeah, at this point now, what, eight days away? Uh, yes, not that I'm at all counting, you know, every single day. <laughs> I was born in 1980. I was literally raised on this show. So when I heard they're making and they thought, oh, shit. This is good. Yeah, uh, I, I hope you like it because um, the people that I know who are the deepest fans of this are people who worked on it. And so the desire to make it the show that that you wanted as a 10 year old that never stopped, um, I think was real. <laughs>
Mm-hmm. Also seeing that Mark Hamill is Skeletor, that, that blew my head a little bit. Yeah, dude, like there's there's a couple moments in this show where like, you know, when I got to, to screen the episodes, I'm like, I wrote that dumbass line and Mark <laughs> Hamill said it. And it tickles me to no end that that's a thing that exists in the world. And uh, yeah, it's it's lovely. I swear that guy's like that guy's like Joker voice has been used so many ways in so many formats and so many like permutations. It's unbelievable. Yeah, you know, and to and to get the one of the greatest to ever do it to come back and you know friggin' do Skeletor and just lay into it like that. Like. God bless everybody. Exactly. God bless us, everyone. Yeah. <laughs> and on that note, we will bring the episode to a close. Mark, again, thank you so much for talking to me. It was a lot of fun, and I sincerely hope we can do it again down the road. Thanks, Max. I appreciate it. This is Angelina Singer, author of the Upper World series, and you're listening to Citywide Blackout, the best podcast for independent artists. Okay, everyone, that brings this episode to a close. Don't forget to follow the show on Facebook under Citywide Blackout and Twitter and Instagram under Citywide Max. Huge thanks to Mark for joining me. I had a lot of fun talking about this comic. And one last time, you can only get it on Comixology Originals. Six bucks a month, you get access to thousands upon thousands of digital titles. Listen to the show anywhere you find podcasts and every Saturday at 10 p.m. on Boston Free Radio. As always, keep those ears open.